Oh, parashat Mishpatim. This is an uh, interesting parsha. We've been reading all about the Exodus, and for many, many parshas, a very riveting story. And then suddenly you get to Parashat Mishpatim, and you think to yourself, what is going on here? Just out of the blue, law after law after law, just lists of them. Let's see, let's take a look at that. Parashat Mishpatim, Mishamot. It's going to take, going to take a look at the beginning of this week's Torah portion. Um, it's Exodus chapter 21, if I remember correctly. I wasn't the greatest with the notes this week. Parashat Mishpatim. This is, uh, some of these laws here are a little curious. Some laws, of course, that are given in Torah are fairly easy to understand. Like we just read last week, Parashat Yitro, thou shalt not steal. This is easy stuff. But in this week, some of these laws may seem outdated or irrelevant to the modern ear. Some of the laws may even seem uh, a bit uncomfortable to read. But this is the revelation of God to his people. It reflects his righteousness and his justice. And so even though some of these laws may, we may question a little bit, to diminish any of these laws is to diminish the revelation of God to the world. That's why many of us here don't like to use the term Old Testament because simply by calling it old seems to diminish it somehow. So we like to prefer Torah and Tanakh. That keeps from diminishing his word. So even though some of these laws may seem outdated or irrelevant, every Torah commandment reveals something of God's nature, and there may be multiple levels of revelation embedded with them. For example, the very starting off this week's Torah portion, something a little bit... Um, that seems a little odd to the modern ear, right? Um, our Torah portion starts out, these are the rulings you are to present to them. If you purchase a Hebrew slave, he is to work six years, but in the seventh, he is to be given his freedom without having to pay anything. Now, rules about slavery seem very uncomfortable to our ears. Our country has a history with slavery, which is something all of us wish never happened. Um, the sad truth is, slavery has been a part of uh, many countries and societies from all over the world, from creation until literally today. The institution of slavery in the Israelite world is much different than the slavery experienced in early American history. The Israelite could place himself or herself into slavery over financial struggles or perhaps surrender a child into slavery as well, but it wasn't something meant to be permanent or um, really, um, how would you say, detrimental to the person. It, it, this little Israelite world and the whole slavery aspect of it sounds very strange to us. But the Torah protects such people. You know, there's laws here regarding not only here but in other places that regard their treatment, ensure that people are not exploited as is customary in most all other cu cultures and gives them rights. Those who are most easily exploited are protected under Torah law. We're talking about the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, and the slave. All the lowly in society are protected. Torah law guides all of Israelite life. This is so that the lowly, including the slave, doesn't get exploited, it doesn't get beaten and abused and killed. 
which happens to slaves and other uh, countries and nations. But digging a little deeper, beyond the plain meaning of this verse, there's much to recognize from it. The liberation in the seventh year gets one thinking about the number seven. Seven, of course, is very significant in Torah. Earth was made in seven days. But beyond the earth and the universe being made in six days and resting on the seventh day, seven just seems to pop up a lot. It's very significant in Torah. So here, the Hebrew slave has to work six years, and the seventh, he's given his freedom. Sounds just like the week of creation. Turn forward a couple pages. Let's see, chapter 23 is a couple pages over. We got some more imagery with number seven in it. Beginning in verse 10. So this is Shemot or Exodus 23, verse 10. <clears throat> For six years you are to sow your land with seed and gather its harvest. But the seventh year you are to let it rest and lie fallow, so that the poor among your people can eat, and that what they leave, the wild animals in the countryside can eat, do the same with your vineyard and olive grove. And then, of course, the next verse is, for in six days you are to work, and the seventh day you are to rest. That's the Shabbat commandment. So there's this cycle here of seven years. Six years, you shall sow. The seventh year, it's called a Shemitah. That is the Shemitah year. So it's a seven-year cycle, just like the week of creation. And then on the seventh year, the Shemitah, the land is to rest. This is part of a bigger cycle of seven times 70 years. Leviticus chapter 25, verse 8, contains instructions to count off uh, seven cycles of these Shemitahs. So that's seven uh, times seven years, and that's 49 years. And then the 50th year is a Yovel, or a year jubilee. So the pattern of seven occurs in many places all throughout Scripture. The uh, feast of unleavened bread, seven days. I mean, it's just, it keeps popping up that it's hard not to notice this. And as far back as the third and fourth century, the sages really started to speculate about um, this pattern of seven. And there's an interesting discussion about the end times that I found, because ultimately as uh, disciples of Yeshua, everything that we read and study in Torah, we should drive us when we really think about it towards his kingdom and towards his Messiahship and see if there's something we can draw out of that because Yeshua tells us that Moses and the prophets testify for him. So it's our job to search these out. So when you start to read through a little bit of this and you see patterns, that spirit should be working within us, trying to um, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And so as I was studying into this a little bit, I came across an interesting discussion in the Talmud, specifically Tractate Sanhedrin, pages 97 A and B. There is a discussion that the stuff they talk about I found stunning. For example, they talk about in the end times, the youth will disrespect their elders and the daughters will come against their mothers and the bride will come against her mother-in-law and I thought, geez, that sounds pretty familiar. You know, but that's just that, that's because all that thought is cut from that, you know, same uh, spiritual fabric of Jewish thought. And then they go on to say, they go on to compare all of human history to uh, the week of creation, where one day is as a thousand years. So all of human history fits in a 7,000 year period. 
which puts us real close to the uh, end of the week because in the Jewish calendar, it's 5783. So theoretically, um, in about 217 years, will be something very significant happening. Even Hillel must have thought about this. The Jewish calendar was created in the 4th century. Hillel predicted all the holidays for the next several thousand years, but he stopped at the year 6,000 and just cut it off therein because there's an expectation of something coming in the year 6,000. We would suggest that might be when Yeshua returns. It's really easy to, uh, you know, when it comes to prophecy, to be a date setter if you set the date a couple hundred years from now because if you're wrong, no one's going to know. So whenever asked, when do you think he's coming back, I said, well, if I had to give you a date, 217 years gets us to the year 6,000 on the Jewish calendar. I guess I'll roll with that. Again, all of this thought is hopeful anticipation um, of the coming kingdom. And that's possible because of the revelation of Adonai in the Torah and in the Tanakh. We are seeking the kingdom, of course, searching for clues and uh, getting close to that millennial reign. And this is something talked about a lot in Judaism as well as in Christian circles. It's talked about in both. You know, being exposed to the Messianic Jewish movement, I think, gave me a fuller picture of what to expect when Yeshua returns. And I think this is because of the treatment of the Torah and the prophets within, the, uh, within those circles. Um, Sometimes the Western man looks at Torah and all these weird laws and decides, well, some of them are civil laws, some of them are religious laws or ritual laws, some of them are moral laws, and they tend to start to divide this, this Torah up into things that matter and things that really don't matter to them. But the Torah doesn't do that. The Torah makes no such distinctions. In the Torah life, everything's all intertwined, and it's all one, a piece of one instruction. And so sometimes uh, certain parts of the Torah and the Tanakh get paid a little bit more, they get a little more attention paid to them in the Messianic Jewish world. And so we begin to see how that meshes with the New Testament so well. The New Testament, the writers of the New Testament thought like this too. They were very focused on the Torah and on the Tanakh. There is a, uh, I saw an article done by one Eric Lyons he was analyzing all the verses in the book of Revelation. Lots of times when you think about the end, end of times, when you think about uh, what does the messianic era look like or the kingdom, uh, you know, back when you're in the church, first place you go to is the book of Revelation. He analyzed the 404 verses that are in the book of Revelation, and to him it seems like 278 of them make some allusion to the Old Testament, as he puts it. That's over two-thirds of the verses in the book of Revelation make an allusion to the Old Testament, much higher percentage than any other book in the New Testament, largely references to Isaiah and Daniel and Zechariah. The book of Revelation is just loaded up with these verses because, well, when God gave John that revelation of what the end times are going to look like, it was the same revelation that he gave Isaiah and Daniel and um, Zechariah and others, it's that same vision. And so when John begins to write down 
his revelation, that vision that he had, of course he's going to pull from these guys because he saw the same vision or at least something very similar to what they had. So when you want a vision of what the, uh, let's see, what the, what it looks like after Yeshua returns. Some call it the kingdom or the messianic age. I think that's all pretty overlapping material. I really like to go to a couple different places. Number one, Isaiah 11, page 454. Isaiah 11, I really love this passage because of the obvious messianic presence in the oracle. This is where the number seven gets me to. Number seven just gets me on a, a wild goose chase of sevens and this and that, and it just, when you have that spirit within you, it's guiding you towards the kingdom. And so I ended up here, Isaiah chapter 11. Verse 1, but a branch will emerge from the trunk of Yeshai, a shoot will grow from his roots, the spirit of Adonai will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and power, the spirit of knowledge and fearing Adonai, He will be inspired by fearing Adonai. He will not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but he will judge the impoverished justly. He will decide fairly for the humble of the land. He will strike the land with a rod from his mouth and slay the wicked with a breath from his lips. Justice will be the belt around his waist and faithfulness the sash around his hips. The wolf will lie with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the kid. Calf, young lion, and fat and lamb together. This is a time, obviously, of great peace, world peace. And when you read this, it says, He will strike the land with a rod from his mouth and slay the wicked. Oh, we like that. I like that verse because it makes it sound like he's going to start slaying the wicked. And we can all picture on our heads some wicked people you'd love to see smited, right? It's just sometimes it's just how our flesh is. We just want God to come down and just start raining wrath and vengeance on people. But then there's another aspect of the coming back that makes it seem like maybe it's a little bit different picture than just Yeshua coming back to just slay all the people we think are wicked. Turn back just a few pages to Isaiah chapter 2. This is on page 437. Again, this is a view of um, what's coming down the pipeline. What's, gonna, what's it going to look like when Yeshua comes back? And these passages that you read in the prophets are a little bit easier, at least for me, to understand than the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, when you get through it, lots of stuff going on there. But a lot of these passages that you go back to are a little bit easier for me to sort of draw imagery from. Isaiah 2 begins, This is the word that Yeshiahu, the son of Amot, saw concerning Yehuda and Yerushalayim in the Achri Hayamim, that's in the end of days. The mountain of Adonai's house will be established as the most important mountain, of course. He's going to be reigning from Jerusalem. It will be regarded more highly than the other hills, and all the goyim, that's all the nations, all the different nations, um, will stream there. Many peoples will go and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Adonai, to the house of the God of Yaakov. He will teach us about his ways, and we will walk in his paths. From out of Zion will go forth the Torah, the law, and the word of Adonai from Yerushalayim. He will judge between the nations and arbitrate for many peoples. I just found that interesting. I've been thinking about that lately. He will judge between the nations and arbitrate for many peoples. They will hammer their swords into plow blades and their spears into pruning knives, and nations 
will not raise swords at each other and they will no longer learn war. It makes it sound like in the coming kingdom, when he returns and there's world peace, that there's still going to be nations, autonomous nations perhaps, and even governments within them nations, and governors and presidents and congressmen still um, in power in their nation, but subject in a worldwide kingdom. So now they're part of a kingdom, but they're still subject to Yeshua reigning from Jerusalem. It will be a time, perhaps, of correction and Torah learning for the world, for everyone. Because Adonai wishes that none should perish, that all should repent, and I guess that should be our posture too. I mean, sometimes I wish for destruction of the wicked. I turn on the news, and I wish Adonai would just start smiting people. But I shouldn't. I should be praying for their deliverance and loving my enemy and praying for them. It's a much different picture than it was ever presented to me outside of the Messianic Jewish circles. I have a fuller understanding, I think, because of the high view of Torah in this movement. And the church is always part of in the past. Inadvertently, I think they had uh, um, diminished somewhat some of the Torah in some ways, inadvertently because the weirdness of some of the laws. Very good godly people there. But sometimes the way the word is divided, again, I think inadvertently, not on purpose, you know, it hinders the, uh, that revelation sometimes that Adonai wants to bestow upon people. When one takes in Torah study and the prophets, it really illuminates the writings of the apostles in new and powerful ways, but people are beginning to wake up and see that. Um, and of course, this was the original plan. I think that we're getting to the point in history where the Messianic Jewish movement is sort of getting back to basics, getting back to where it was, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Because originally, the first churches were synagogues that had a Jewish core and then had many people from the nations getting plugged into that community to learn about Torah because that lays the proper foundation. I think in these end times, things are getting back in order. People are receiving revelation. They're seeking deeper understandings of Scripture and they need Torah, they just need to see Torah in a little bit different light and sort of uplift it a little more. Um, something that um, they see as full of wisdom and treasures that all point to the Messiah and his kingdom if they spend enough time in there studying the seemingly irrelevant and strange laws that are in there. I'll close with words from King David. He wrote much about the Torah and the Psalms, of course. <clears throat> Turn with me to page 911 in the Complete Jewish Bible. If you have another version of Scripture, we'll be finishing um, by reading the first handful of verses out of Psalm 119. Every time when we're going to go through some Torah portions coming up, especially in Vayikra, where it's law after law after law, these weird, seemingly outdated laws that sound strange to us, when they start sounding strange, keep Psalms like this in the forefront of your mind. Psalm 119, how happy are those whose way of life is blameless, who live by the Torah of Adonai. How happy are those who observe his instruction, who seek him wholeheartedly. They do nothing wrong but live by his ways. You laid down your precepts for us to observe with care. May my ways be steady in observing your laws. Then I will not be put to shame 
since I will have fixed my sight on all your mitzvot. I thank you with a sincere heart as I learn your righteous rulings. I will observe your laws. Do not completely abandon me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Don't let me stray from your mitzvot. I treasure your word in my heart so that I won't sin against you. Blessed are you, Adonai. Teach me your laws. I proclaim with my mouth all the rulings you have spoken. I rejoice in the way of your instruction more than in any kind of wealth. I will meditate on your precepts and keep my eyes on your ways. I will find delight in your regulations. I will not forget your word. Deal generously with your servant, then I will live and observe your word. Open my eyes so that I will see the wonders from your Torah. <clears throat> I tell you, friends, may the Spirit encourage us and strengthen us today in our story of, in our study of Torah and our service for the sake of his kingdom. May we be ever seeking his kingdom and his righteousness in the return of our King who's going to come and rescue the world from its ways and teach it Torah and teach it righteousness and repair and restore this world. And may we be found to be faithful disciples of our Messiah Yeshua, loving people full of mercy and kindness to everyone in the world. Shabbat Shalom.